Dr. Kali is a professor at Calvin University. He's also the co-founder and partner at Talent Asset Advisors. And he's going to highlight one of the main reasons that organizations are not successful as they would like to be, um, which is unhealthy organizational culture, specifically um, the failure to create engaging work and engaging work environments. So let's give a hand for Dr. Kali. All right. Good morning. This is uh, super awesome to be with some like-minded people. I can tell already based on a lot of the comments made here. Um, I'm going to be preaching to the choir a little bit, so I'm excited about that. I'm also going to warn you right up front, let's hopefully this will work, awesome, that uh, I'm used to, Mike, okay, I don't, all right, I'll try to talk loud until then. Um, I'm used to, um, when I get in front of people and talk, minimum I have 90 minutes, and I'm used to three hours now of teaching my classes. So 30 <laughs> minutes, Mike told me I had 30 minutes, I sneeze and 30 minutes is over. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to stick to some prepared remarks a little bit. I'll come off script a little bit, but there's no way I'll tell you what I want to share with you in 30 minutes if I don't stick pretty close to this. Um, Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Waypoint. It's exciting to see what they're doing. Mike um, and I connected after I gave a talk, and uh, we immediately started realizing how much we uh, had in common, the way we think about business, the way we think about growth, the way we think about leadership. And now I'm hearing a whole bunch of other people that think that way too, and it's awesome. I should also, I just want to thank um, my employer, my primary employer, Calvin University, that um, supported some sabbatical research that I got to do last year to dig into some of these issues. Um, didn't finish the book I'm working on quite yet, but it'll be coming soon. It'll talk quite a bit about this that I'm going to talk to you about today. You should be aware of the perspective I bring to the topics that I, I'm going to talk about today. Um, before I, and many of you think, oh, here's the academic presentation. I was a consultant, internal consultant, external consultant for 20 years before I came to Kelvin. Worked with um, businesses all over the world on building cultures. Um, and so, and, but my background, my academic background is I'm probably in a field that I bet maybe none of you have heard of before. It's called industrial and organizational psychology. Um, you probably don't have an idea, but in short, what, what I get to study and teach about is something that you might think is a, an impossible task, to make work suck less. That's what I do. That's what I do. And, and yeah, culture and leadership, I preach all the time, uh, but at the end of the day, it's kind of about the people. The flourishing of the people needs to happen to get flourishing organizations. Um, before I start, I want to give you a brief snapshot of the amazing place that I get to go to work every day, because it may not be the same place that you thought it was, um, and talk about purpose. Again, I've worked for and worked with hundreds of companies all around the world. I've never found a place that has more purpose than the place that I get to go. We've become a university recently at Kelvin, this, uh, this summer in fact. We just got ranked this last week, we just got ranked third in the Midwest for regional universities, our first time on the regional university list. And we have an entirely new business curriculum starting this fall. And we'll be, we're adding exist to existing graduate programs really soon. So it's not your grandparents Kelvin anymore. <laughs> for those of you that have known it for a while. My talk today is gonna to follow an outline that we use to help 
uh, students understand how to solve business problems. And the students in, I have a few students in here that will know this, and maybe you know this methodology as well. I'm gonna present a problem to you that I believe um, is quite limiting to the, or helping our businesses succeed. I'm gonna provide some analysis for that problem. What are the root causes for that problem? And then I'm gonna give you some recommendations. Here's the problem I'd like to present. My observation, in general, our organizations, lo and behold, lack, lack healthy cultures. In particularly, they lack trust, they lack open communication, and engagement, employees' engagement in the work and their places of work is surprisingly low. In fact, I suggest that we have an unusually high number of organizational cultures that are based more on fear that inevitably leads to stagnation and capitulation. Okay, big idea, right? Let's try to break it down. I think that we need to reevaluate the primary responsibility of our supervisors and our managers and our leaders. We're so often concerned about status and position in our organizations, about being in charge, right? What's our headcount? What's our budget? Can we add FTE this year? That we actually forget about our real job. The real job of a supervisor, a manager, or a leader is actually not being in charge. It's about taking care of those in our charge. Most of us enter the workforce as individual, in an individual contributor role, where our primary responsibility is to be excellent at the work we're given to do. Our companies are often quite good at providing training around how to do our jobs, software training, technical training, and so forth, maybe even sponsoring a, a, a furthering education degree. Typically what happens after that is you get excellent at your job. You become really good at what you do and the company will promote you. And at some point you'll be promoted to the position where you are now responsible for the job that you used to do, but nobody shows you how to do that. A reason that we have so many micromanagers in our organizations, and trust me, I hear about it all the time from my students that are doing internships. We've got a lot of micromanagers. Um, is that they actually do know how to do the work better than anyone. That's what got them promoted. We need, it, we need our supervisors, our managers, and our leaders to go through a transition. And some are going to make the transition quickly, some will make it slowly, and some, unfortunately, will never make the transition at all. The transition is be, from being responsible for the job and now being somebody who's responsible for the people who are responsible for the job. Some analysis. So I'm going to deal with both of these um, a little bit um, here today. Let's look at what I believe is to be two, there's probably others, but at least two of the root causes for this problem. Even though many economic indicators are strong, organizations coming out of the last recession continue to run lean, as I'm sure you know, and look for more efficient and more cost-effective ways to operate, which has led to continued reorganizations and layoffs in many ways, this is the new reality that will likely be with us for some time. In part because of this economic uncertainty, many of our organizations are now places where we come to work every day unsure and afraid. It's almost impossible to stand up and admit, I made a mistake. It's our responsibility to create environments where our employees feel safe enough to raise their hand and say, I don't really know what I'm doing. I need help. I made a mistake, I screwed something up, I'm scared, I'm worried. 
Who would ever admit these things inside of most of our organizations? It puts a target on your head in, the, in case there's another reorganization or another round. How can an organization ever do well or actually improve if nobody is ever willing to admit they made a mistake, is scared, or they, or they really don't know what they're doing? We have created cultures where every single day our employees come to work and lie, hide, and fake. And we talk so much these days about the importance of authenticity and vulnerability. I'm not so sure. I've had clients say to me many times, uh, we, just can't get, we just can't get the right performance out of our people. Can you help? Most of the time the answer is, maybe it's you. All of us want to work in a place where there is someone that cares for us as a human being and that understands that all of us have real struggles and the struggles come with us to work. That idea of work-life integration right, is, is a helpful thought as, as we think about this. It's hard to create this kind of culture. You bet it is. Is it messy? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Without a doubt. When we feel psychologically unsafe or unvalued, we often protest quietly, sometimes even silently or subconsciously. Maybe we stop trying as hard at work, or maybe we act in ways that subtly undermine leadership or act against leadership's objectives, even just a little bit. In corporate speak, we become disengaged, or worse yet, actively disengaged. Some numbers for you. Generally today, about one quarter of employees have been with their company less than a year. In most organizations and positions, it takes at least that long to become fully functional and to really make um, impactful contributions. More than half of our employees have been there less than five years. And these are the employees that have real experience with the company, the customers, the products, the services, and most importantly, experience with the culture. While increased employee churn and turnover is tough on our organizations and really expensive, the quiet killer of a company's competitive advantage, I would argue, is lack of engagement. Recent estimates are less than one-fifth, actually 17% of today's employees are actively engaged in their work. The impact of this is quite troublesome. Let's put it another way. On average, you could say 70% of your organization's costs tend to be on people-related costs. 83% of that cost or you could set 56% of the total cost, is then on staff that are not passionate about what they're doing. They don't see the purpose. Can you really afford to gamble with well over half of your costs? Employee loyalty is no longer synonymous with retention. Just because employees stick with the job doesn't mean they're engaged and therefore as productive as they could be. What is employee engagement? Generally, it's an individual's involvement with, their satisfaction with, and enthusiasm for the work that they perform. Engagement is great. There's ways that we're going to talk about ways to increase that. But again, the real issue and concern for us is this category of disengaged, and particularly actively disengaged employees. This starts early. Estimates are that up to 43% of employees feel some disengagement by their third year of employment and it can start as quickly as six months. The most common reasons for disengagement include inadequate training, not committed to the company's mission or understanding how they can help achieve it, or not knowing how they're performing in their job. 
to highlight the importance of engagement, longtime CEO um, of GE, who for a long time led a, led a pretty successful business um, and was known for that, um, identifies the three best measures of gauging an organization's overall health. Three best. Most business leaders would say, oh, it's got to be some financial metrics in there. Number three, the third most important, he did say, were some financial metrics, free cash flow and healthy financials. Number two, customer satisfaction. Number one, most be the best indicator he would look at for an organization's overall health was employee engagement. With our remaining minutes today, I'm going to drill down into some specific recommendations to address this problem and its, and its root causes. I'm going to focus particularly on what we know and what we're learning about giving leaders the tools that they need to connect with the natural enthusiasm and energy that young people, and millennials and Gen Z, which I get the awesome privilege to work primarily with, possess. In particular, we're going to talk about, one, their desire for feedback. Two, an express need for the, for the meaning in their work. And three, greater autonomy. A few years ago, author Daniel Pink wrote a book, maybe some of you have read it, a book called Drive, that actually drew on 30-year-old 30, 30 research, okay? stuff that we have known for a very long time in psychology and behavioral economics that speaks to the real power of human motivation something that's really been ignored by organizations, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years. We're starting to see a little bit more traction around it now, which is exciting. Organizations tend to focus on compensation, benefits, rewards, and perks to motivate employees. However, for a large proportion of our workers in today's economy, once you pay people fairly, increasing compensation and rewards actually does very little to, to improve performance. And in many cases, it decreases performance. Trust me, it's true. Data after data. There are dozens of studies all around the world in different industries and organizations that show time and time again that higher pay and bonuses above and beyond fair pay results in better performance only if the task consists of basic or mechanical skills. It works for problems that have defined. So it does work. It works for situations where there's a defined set of steps and a single answer. Okay, how many of the jobs that you're working with today have defined sets of steps and a single answer? If the work involved cognitive skills, decision-making, creativity, higher-order thinking, higher pay resulted in lower performance almost every time. As the nature of much of our work in our organizations is requiring cognitive skills, higher-order thinking, creativity, as the world is becoming more outsourced and automated, we need to rely more on intrinsic motivation to fully engage and motivate our employees. Pink's book was, like I mentioned, was based on 30-year-old work of Hackman and Oldman in the 1970s. Some Harvard researchers, and they called it the job characteristics model. Pink reduced these intrinsic motivators that they talked about way back then that we've been studying for 30 years to purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And I'll just highlight these three. I'm going to only talk about one of them for the rest of my time. Purpose, we've heard a little bit about purpose already. The desire to do something that has meaning and is important. Seeing how what I do matters to the bigger picture. How does my job relate to the mission? Who notices if I do my job well and what impact does it have? Okay, autonomy. Our desire to be self-directed. To bring the best of ourselves to work. 
Autonomy increases engagement rather than simply compliance. One of the things we've learned about management in recent years is we've gotten away from um, authority, um, command and control, right, perspectives of management, and much more about empowerment and autonomy. And what we get is engagement. And actually, you know, when we get engagement, we still get compliance too. A lot of people, a lot of old, old school thinkers and management, we can't give up compliance. I promise you, you won't if you have engagement. But you get a whole lot more with engagement. Last one, mastery, and this is what I'm gonna talk the most about with my time remaining. The urge to get better, to improve and develop. How well am I doing and how can I get better? That's an innate thing that all of us have, right? We're in jobs that we enjoy, that we like, and we wanna become the best at it, right? That's why we're there. And our organizations aren't helping us very well doing that. Just to show you the whole model, I know I'm an academic and I've got to put a model up there at some point. We're not going to go over it all, but this is, a, this is a, really a watered-down version a little bit of um, the job characteristics model so you can see the whole thing. Um, you can see the nature of the work um, that talks about the tasks, uh, that the way that the work is done, how people identify with how, what the work is, autonomy and feedback being the other two. That has an imp The way we manipulate and understand and create the work in our organizations has an impact on the psychological states of our employees. Things like the meaningfulness of the work, how they understand what they do makes a difference. The responsibility for the outcomes. Okay, if we give them more autonomy, they become more empowered and responsible for those outcomes. And the knowledge of results and how to improve. How do we expect people to get better when they don't get good feedback, right? That they don't get good feedback. Or what we'll talk about here, maybe you think they get good feedback, but they're not listening. We'll talk about why that is in just a moment. When we do these things well, and there's not just one way to do them, it's going to be dependent on the culture, dependent on right, the, 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 the levers that we get to move in our organizations to try to manipulate that depends on our organization. And you know what? It also depends on the people because we're all different. So yeah, it is hard work. There's not a cookie cutter solution to this. But what we know is if we can get these things right, we're going to see increased motivation. We're going to see increased satisfaction. We're going to see increased productivity, lower turnover, lower absenteeism, and lower accidents in our work. The data is clear, right? We've got tons of data on this. It's a lot easier just to write somebody a bigger paycheck. It's a lot easier to do that. Doesn't have great results. This will work, but it's a ton of work. It's a ton of work to do it. So here's what I'm gonna talk about with the rest of our time, particularly my area of research is around feedback, performance appraisal, performance evaluation, performance management, all of those sorts of ideas. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> One of the most troublesome areas of management that directly relates to the inability of organizations to engage its employees is this notion of performance evaluation and feedback. If you don't know, if you haven't been following all of the business press and popular press, um, it's a mess. Performance management for the last five years in particular is a mess, okay? Um, I'm gonna, performance management, uh, if we define it, so what are we talking about? This continuous process of identifying, measuring, and developing the performance of individuals and teams and aligning that performance with the goals of the organization. I put some headlines up here so that you can see they continue to come. It started maybe four or five years ago, um, but it's uh, what has happened, the, one of the, the big things that's happened is a lot of organizations estimated to be um, at least 30% of the Fortune 100 
have eliminated their evaluation and rating process from their system. They said the amount of time and energy and effort and lack of impact that we get by evaluating our employees isn't worth it anymore. Okay? It's causing more harm than good. So they're saying we're just not going to do that anymore. Hmm. Well, what are you going to do, right? How are you going to develop your people? Lots of questions come to mind. But through, so through this process, one, I'm thrilled that we're looking to do some new things. Two, I'm not real thrilled about some of the things that we're eliminating by doing that, right? So we need to look at that. It's a great opportunity. Um, but to highlight a little bit more about why I think some things are a mess, I was at a conference in Washington, D.C. a few months ago and Gallup presented some data that they just collected around this area. Look at this data. Only three in 10 workers agree that their company's performance management system helped them to improve. 30% of our employees think that the, the feedback, the information they're getting is helping them do a better job. 95% of managers are dissatisfied, and the managers even like it less and think it's not working. Two and only two in 10 employees strongly agree that their performance is managed in a way that motivates them to do outstanding work. You don't believe me, it's a mess? We've got some problems. The practices that we have had in place have been in place for 50, 70, maybe 100 years. Do you think the nature of work has changed over that time? You bet it has. But eliminating the evaluative component of the process, in my opinion, isn't the answer. Feedback and evaluation is essential for people to develop and excel in their work. There's some good news, however. We've started to figure out that just training managers to, um, to be better feedback givers doesn't work either. We've tried that. I spent part of my sabbatical time looking for one study, one published study, in a, in a real organization that showed me that if we trained managers to be better feedback givers, that employees accepted the feedback, did something about the feedback. It doesn't exist, okay? There's no evidence that training managers to, so one of the things that's happened, it says, maybe it's, it's not just training the managers, we need to change the culture. So over the last five years, as some of these changes are happening, there's some encouraging things that are going on moving from traditional 100-year-old practices around performance management to this notion of feedback culture. And you can see some of those things. Having performance conversations around um, what's going right and what's going wrong, not waiting for six months or 12 months to have that meet, right? Some of you are in organizations where you get your formal evaluation done once a year. Why are we waiting to have those conversations, right? It should be real-time feedback. And, and conversations where we sit down and we should have, especially the, where things are going wrong, let's right, address that in the moment. Our managers and supervisors aren't real good at that. They're too busy, too. What are they busy with? What are all of our managers and supervisors so busy with that they don't have time to actually take care of their people? Right? Something's wrong there, too. Um, expectations based on clear expectations and accountability. Um, leveraging strengths. Okay, one of the things in this whole notion of intrinsic motivation, um, hopefully you're hiring people because they bring something amazing to your organization and to the jobs that they're doing. And then a lot of times they get bogged down in the, all the list of responsibilities of the things they're doing in their, in, their, in their job description, and all of a sudden they're not, doing, they're not leveraging the thing that you hired them for to begin with. 
right? So working, there's a new idea, maybe you've heard of it, called job crafting. Have you heard about job crafting? Where, yeah, these are the things that need to get done, but you're going to be so much better off if you can figure, figure out with the employee kind of how to build that, how to craft that job around what they're amazing at. Because all of them are amazing at something, and they're all amazing at different things. So adding some flexibility to that to make that work. Goals are created. Collaborative, it's focused on future behaviors, much more on individualized expectations. This is how you change culture around feedback, right? I'm going to make an argument with my closing moments that I told you I didn't think training managers to be better feedback givers work so much. So what do we do to change this culture? I think it starts with us. I think it starts with every, every one of us. It must. So I'm going to talk about approach uh, for each of us to become a better feedback seeker and a better feedback receiver. And we haven't really studied this very much, but I'm pretty confident that over time, in the long run, if we all get better at those two things, the feedback giver problem will solve itself. But let me go into a little more detail. We've been trying to train managers for decades. Millions of dollars have been spent on training programs with very limited results to show improvement of training managers. Simply improving the skills of the feedback giver doesn't accomplish much if the receiver isn't able to absorb what is said. We must stop treating feedback only as something that must be pushed and instead improve people's skills to pull. What if in our organizations all the employees focused on, on skills with the, seek to, uh, the ability to seek feedback more readily and to accept feedback with humility and commit to continued dialogue and making adjustments that will improve performance? Again, there's good news here. The skills needed to seek and receive feedback are distinct and they're learnable. But again, it's not easy. So why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Our biology. Okay, our biology is a pretty big reason why it's so hard. When faced with feedback, neuroscientists tell us that we automatically go into a threat response. A hypothalamus starts releasing chemicals like adrenaline, neuroadrenaline, cortisol, into the bloodstream, which prepares the body to respond. Okay? When we get this in these feedback, that's what's going on. Our, 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 right? our, our, our brain neuro system is taking over, and the chemicals cause us to perceive everything in our environment as a potential threat. If we're primed to see things as threats, it limits our ability to listen and engage in thoughtful dialogue that will result in effective development and change. So if it starts with, if it starts with you, here's my, here's my recommendations. Own your performance, and this is for us, and for us to model for the rest of our organizations. Own your performance and your development. If you aren't getting feedback and development in ways that work for you, manage upward and make suggestions. What's the worst that can happen? Your boss says no. If that's the case, maybe you want to get your resume ready. <laughs> uh, think, of the, think of feedback as a gift that will help you improve. Find opportunities to get bite-sized pieces of coaching from a variety of people. Don't invite criticism with a big, unfocused question like, do you have any feedback for me? <laughs> it doesn't work, okay? Make the process much more manageable by asking a question of a, a colleague or a boss or a direct report. What's the one thing that you see me doing or failing to do that holds me back? Research has shown that those who explicitly seek feedback not just fishing for praise, but seek critical feedback, tend to perform better at work. Why? 
Someone asking for coaching is more likely to take what is said and heard and genuinely improve. But also, listen to this, when you ask for feedback, you not only find out about how others see you, you also influence how they see you. Soliciting constructive criticism communicates humility, respect, passion for excellence, and confidence all in one go. Number two, know your tendencies, self-awareness. You have, you have been getting feedback all of your life, so there are no doubt patterns in how you respond. I've seen them all and probably done most of them. Do you defend yourself on the facts? That's just plain wrong. Do you argue about the method of delivery? You're seriously doing this by email? Do you, do you um, strike back? You of all people. Do you smile on the outside but seethe on the inside? Right? Do you get teary or filled with righteous indignation? Remaining self-aware takes work. Stay attuned to the strengths and weaknesses of your work performance. Recognize that you have blind spots and expect to hear something unexpected. Remember that the things that you don't already know are often the most valuable part of the feedback. Number three, you have a choice to react or respond. Resist the urge to defend or explain. Just receive and inquire. If some of the feedback hurts or makes you angry, observe your emotions and notice what triggers them. Resist the biology of fight, flight, or freeze. Breathe. As much as you can, cultivate a detached curiosity so that you can respond rather than react. And number four, take it or leave it. You're in the driver's seat. Remember number one? It's time for you to decide what action, if any, to take. Often it's not immediately clear whether feedback is valid and useful. So before you accept it or reject it, do some analysis to better understand it. Set aside snap judgments and take time to explore where the feedback is coming from and where it's going. And you can enter into a rich, informative conversation about potential changes and whether or not you decide to take that advice. Your growth depends on your ability to pull value from praise and criticism in spite of your natural responses and on your willingness to seek out feedback from coaches and bosses and peers and subordinates. They may be good or bad at providing it, and they're probably going to be bad, or sometimes they may have little time for it, but you are the most important factor in your own development. If you're determined to learn from whatever feedback you get, no one can stop you. Just some closing thoughts. At the end of the day, what we all probably need most of all is not information. It's empathy, one of the critical elements in the skill of emotional intelligence. Effective coaches, effective humans practice empathy. So what does empathy look like? Your manager walks into your office and says, your numbers are down for the third quarter in a row. You must pick up your numbers or I can't make any promises about your future here. How inspired, how engaged do you think that person is to come to work the next day? Your manager comes into your office and says, your numbers are down for the third quarter in a row. Are you okay? I'm worried about you. What's going on? How can I help? We'll figure this out together. We all have performance issues, and we all know we make inaccurate attributions about others' behaviors all the time. Maybe someone's kid or someone's parent is sick. Maybe they're having marital challenges. We don't know. But of course, these types of things will affect their performance at work. 
Empathy is being concerned about the human being, not just their production. When I talk to managers, it's not uncommon for someone to ask me, you study motivation, how do I get the most out of my people? And again, I typically respond by saying, you first need to change your mindset. Coaches, people that care about others, ask a different question. How do I help my people be at their natural best? Do you hear the difference? At the end of the day, what we all probably need most of all is empathy. Um, sorry. Organizations have improved over the years at, at work life, no doubt. Okay? We've made our places to work more enjoyable to come to. The day-to-day -day experience have generally improved. But research continues to show that the most important factor of all is addressing the work itself. It's not just a new coffee machine or a ping pong table in the break room limited impact. It's the hard work of making the work meaningful to our employees, giving them a sense of belonging, a sense of trust, and a healthy and productive relationships at work. I will close this with, with an idea for you to take back to your work tomorrow. It's an unscientific poll, but it's a good place to start. Take this question back. What don't we talk about around here that we really should be talking about? Ask some people. What don't we talk about here that we really should be talking about? If they, if they don't give you an answer on the response, offer for them to come back and tell you later in the day. If nobody has anything to say, I suspect your organization is suffering from lack of trust, high levels of fear, and probably pretty low engagement. Your culture needs some work. Start by measuring your engagement levels, developing some action plans to address the result. Your culture can change, but it takes courage, insight, hard work, and patience. Thanks very much. <laughs>